join us for the TVO Telethon, March 23rd and 24th, and donate early for a chance at great prizes. Visit telethon.tvo.org for more information. Welcome everyone to the On Poly Podcast. I'm Steve Pakin. And I'm John Michael McGrath. Today on the pod, the life of the Pickering nuclear plant will be extended to at least 2026. And what would the real cost of repealing wage caps for Ontario's public service workers be? And we kick off our programming for Civics Month leading up to the municipal election on October 24th. This week, why some elected officials are exiting the game. And many are hesitating to get into the game at all, if we're honest. It's Tuesday, October 4th, 2022, so let's get to it. Hi again, partner. How you doing? Oh, you know, just an, another day in paradise. Another day in paradise. Well, that's a good start. All right. How many, um, I was thinking about this the other day, how many years has this podcast been around anyway? In its earliest incarnations, uh, well, Patrick Brown was still the leader of the PC party. Uh, actually, come to think of it, I think Mike Schreiner is the only party leader who hasn't changged since then. So that goes back a bit, right? Yeah. We're, we're four, four years or, or something years. like that? Okay. Well, so, I, I ask because uh, from time to time, we have changed the format a bit of this podcast, and we're going to mess around with the format a little bit more today and going forward, just to sort of keep things spicy. Uh, people may notice in the past, we always left our quotes of the week to the very end. We're going to move them up to the body of the show now a little bit earlier, play off them a little more. A few other ideas that we're going to roll out in the weeks ahead as well. So I hope people will give us their feedback and let us know what they think. I mean, it's the Internet, so I assume we will not lack for feedback. <laughs> <laughs> will we lack for constructive feedback? That's a different question, that, I guess, that's isn't it? That's another question, and I'm going to be diplomatic. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Silent. <laughs> well, you know what? Uh, let me just, before we go any further, let me, I want to do a little shout out here, because I was in London, Ontario this past weekend, attending uh, the homecoming events at uh, Huron University College, and a student named Ella Vitols, I hope I'm saying that right, Ella, Ella Vitols, she approached me to say she loves the podcast, always listens to it. So a shout out to Ella with a big time thanks for being such a loyal listener. You know, uh, I guess the fact is you never really know when you push send who actually listens to this thing. You get a sense of numbers, but you don't know who. And the notion that there are 20 something university students who are listening to this thing, I think is terrific. So, Ella, thank you again. I also actually met a listener uh Last week, uh, I was at my, my kid's school, and I guess uh, somebody there is a, a a listener and also a fellow parent, and they identified me and said hello. And, you know, of the two of us, I'm not the one who's on TV every night, and so <laughs> I'm still getting used to the fact that sometimes people recognize my face. And, uh, yeah, no, it was it was a, a novel experience, and uh, but, no, it was, you know, as you say, you know, we, we put this stuff out into the world, and, and I think maybe even more so when it's the Internet, you don't actually know sometimes whether whether anybody's listening. And so it's actually quite gratifying when people do come up and say hello, and especially when they say nice things. <laughs> okay, let's set up issue one, and here we go. I'm sure many of you know this, but uh, between the division of responsibilities between the federal government and the provincial government, weather today is a provincial responsibility. Here, here, today, though. There's the finance minister showing off his sense of humor again. Okay, John Michael, you picked that clip. How come? Uh, well, you know, uh, a little bit of an atmospheric joke, if uh, to use a pun, uh, 
the weather is not, in fact, provincial jurisdiction, as much as uh, MPPs are happy to claim it when the weather is nice. Uh, that is uh, Minister Peter Bethlen-Falvey. He was uh, joined by Energy Minister Todd Smith in Pickering, uh, announcing that they are going to extend the life of the Pickering nuclear reactor for a year longer than previously planned. So we're looking at 2026 now that they want to keep it in commission till. Uh, that is correct. They had already extended it one year. It was uh, originally supposed to close in 2024. Uh, early in this uh, party's government, uh, after the 2018 election, they announced that they were going to extend it to 2025. And now that has become 2026. Now, because I wrote a book on former Premier John Robarts, who was the Premier of Ontario during the 1960s, I know this story. And the story is... John Robarts one day was on the floor of his office looking at the plans for Pickering because, of course, it was his government that decided to build the first ever nuclear reactors in the province of Ontario, and those were they. And somebody walked into his office, somebody he knew, a friend of his, and he said, Colin, get your butt over here and get down on the floor here with me and look at these plans. I haven't got a clue what we're trying to do here and help me figure this thing out. How are we going to build these things? So these reactors, I only tell that story because these reactors have been around for a very long time. And there have been moves afoot in the past to decommission them at least a couple of times to announce plans to decommission them. But um, I guess concerns about having an adequate supply have put those plans on hold yet again. So there's a bunch of things going on in Ontario's uh, electricity sector right now. But what is uh, primarily motivating this is that uh, we are, in fact, refurbishing the nuclear reactors uh, at uh, Bruce and at Darlington. And you can't uh, keep a nuclear reactor running while you're trying to rebuild it. So we have to shut these nuclear reactors down while we refurbish them. And that is creating a big hole in our electricity capacity. And the concern from the government is, A, most obviously, like, you don't want to trigger blackouts. Um, but also, even if they did replace it with something else, that would most likely be, like, natural gas power plants. Uh, and in fact, we have built a bunch of those in the last decade or so. And uh, But obviously, those, you know, natural gas is a fossil fuel. They worry about pollution and, uh, you know, even just the, the political harms to the government of, of building more polluting power plants. Uh, so the hope is that by keeping Pickering open longer, uh, that they will uh, fill the, the looming hole in electricity supply with something that is not uh, quite as polluting. And then, of course, the, the minister is also talking about not just uh, extending the lifespan by a year, but uh, as we say, you know, potentially refurbishing it, which would keep it operating into the 2060s potentially the 2070s. I mean, Pickering wasn't supposed to be operating this long. No, it wasn't. But uh, we also have to keep in mind there are thousands of jobs there. And um, who happens to be the MPP for the area? Well, uh, it is the Minister of Finance. So you can understand his interest in keeping those jobs alive. Uh, and, you know, the, the financial side here, just to, to maybe even put a sharper point on this, you know, going forward, we know that the the plans both from the federal government and the provincial government to eventually get us to a, a net zero electricity supply, that is going to be costly. But a, a new report from the Royal Bank of Canada uh, has suggested that at least where they already exist, keeping nuclear reactors uh, open and running as long as feasible uh, could actually save the economy at large billions of dollars uh, because it is a, a, a clean, relatively stable uh, source of electricity uh, clean. Of course, I can already hear some environmentalists uh, angry at me because, of course, nuclear waste is a real problem that we don't actually have a solution for yet. Uh, but 
we're trying not to go too long in the podcast these days, so I'm just going <laughs> to leave that One there thing at a time. Yeah. Well, um, l- let's also say that the government of Ontario does not have the unilateral right to make this decision. There is a federal regulator that oversees all this, and that regulator will have its say before uh, any further decisions are made. It's all well and good to want to keep this plant going, uh, <laughs> but I don't think it's crazy to ask about how safe it is going forward and what are the risks involved in that. This one-year extension to the, uh, the the operating license is probably uh, not that risky, all things considered. Uh, I, I sort of want to joke, the, you know, the riskiest thing about Pickering these days was the the fake emergency message that the province sent out in 2020, if people remember getting that mm-hmm. uh, uh, warning on their cell phones. Um, the, the bigger problem, I think, going forward is that we are talking about locking the province into decades of uh, a specific technology choice. And, you know, energy technology is changing so rapidly right now. Uh, You know, falling costs of solar and wind and uh, in particular these days, uh, lithium ion batteries and and other types of storage technology. Uh, You know, I I really I'm sympathetic to energy regulators who are trying to make any of this make sense right now because it's it's like hitting a moving target. I I think there is a risk that, uh, you know, we are going to lock in some policy choices uh, that um, maybe a decade from now we're going to wish we'd made a different choice. Mm. Well, um, let me be churlish from another point of view, and that is, you'll remember that uh, when the Ford Tories came into power in 2018, one of the first things they did was cancel a whole bunch of green energy contracts that the previous liberal government had signed with, uh, you know, renewable players in the sector. And the explanation at the time given was that power is going to be too expensive to purchase. And not only that, we don't need it because we got enough anyway. Well, here we are extending Pickering because they're concerned that we may face brownouts because the supply is not as secure as we once thought. Is it terrible of me to point out the fact that uh, maybe supply wouldn't have been a problem if you hadn't canceled those contracts four years ago? Uh, you'll be shocked to learn that the energy minister uh, does not think that's a fair uh, assessment. You don't say. You don't say. Wow. <laughs> um, you know, a bunch of things have changed, and and this goes back to you know my my point about the the risks of locking in on any one particular political decision, right? It's not just that uh, we we don't have as much supply as had been planned, but we also uh, have demand that's growing a lot faster. Uh, people buying electric cars is is one thing that maybe people didn't anticipate even five years ago. Uh, but another one is uh, you know the resuscitation of industry in a lot of southwestern Ontario, right? Like all of those electric vehicle plants that this government is uh, you know in fact spending quite a bit of money to to get international investment here. Those are big factories that need a lot of electricity. And of course, it's great news that manufacturers want to come back to Ontario, uh, but you need the electricity for them too. Uh, So it it is... um I kind of want to, you know, use that old line about, you know, what's the hardest thing about being in government? It's keeping up with events, right? Uh, it, it is just a, um, it, it, it's a, a rapidly changing environment. And uh, yeah, you know, we can and maybe even we should get our pokes in at the government for misjudging things in 2018. Fran- frankly, there's a lot of other decisions they made about renewable energy and, and electric vehicles that I think now look quite silly. Um, but uh They are, let's say, pivoting. (laughs) Learning as they go. We have gone through this whole process where our hospitals have been put into crisis uh, in a situation where, in fact, we may have to put out the money in the end anyway uh, if the courts find that the government acted in a way that was unconstitutional. 
I don't think these are savings that have served Ontario well. They should be cancelling Bill 124. Uh, they should be making sure that we have the healthcare workers, the education workers in place so that Ontarians get the services that they deserve and that they need. That was interim NDP leader Peter Tabbins, the MPP for Toronto Danforth, reacting to yet another report from the Financial Accountability Office of Ontario about the cost of Bill 124 if the current court challenge succeeds. Bill 124, of course, one of the more controversial laws passed by the current government. It caps collectively bargained wage settlements at 1% across the public service. Unions are challenging the legality of the bill, making a Charter of Rights and Freedoms argument. JMM, take us uh, into the covers of the FAO report. What did they find? Uh, the headline number here is that the province uh, has saved or will save $9.7 billion on public sector compensation relative to what it would have cost if the Tories hadn't passed Bill 124. At least as importantly, though, the government could lose almost all of those savings if they lose the current charter challenge. Uh, the FAO estimates that if a court orders the government to pay back wages, it could cost uh, the public $8.4 billion. Hmm. Okay. Did the savings realized by Bill 124 and continuing to realize because of the bill, has that allowed the government to spend more in other areas? I mean, they've clearly saved multiple billions of dollars in salaries across the public service by implementing that bill. But what do they do with the savings? I, I think this is one of those cases where the pandemic has absolutely scrambled the picture and, and it would be very difficult to... Uh, point to a line in the budget and, and, you know, identify where the savings have gone. Um, but, you know, to take an example, uh, listeners may re remember just uh, last month, the surprise $2 billion surplus that the government reported. Some of that would seem to be uh, related to Bill 124, uh, at least in part, because $1.4 billion uh, in the government's savings came from lower than expected education spending. And so that I think you could fairly uh, either blame or credit uh, Bill 124 with. Um, but, you know, I, I don't know how far I want to go with that argument, frankly, because the, the much larger factor contributing to that surprise surplus was simply uh, revenues were much, much higher uh, than the government was predicting uh, at the beginning of that fiscal year. It is the first week of TVO Today's Civics Month, and our On Poly podcast will be offering interviews during the month of October on the way municipal and provincial politics intersect. For our first week, we are going to focus on civic engagement. Uh, there are, of course, many ways to interpret that phrase. Uh, voter turnout, for example. Uh, voter turnout for municipal elections is typically the lowest of the three levels of government, despite their portfolios often being the ones that impact our day-to-day -day lives the most. Think uh, garbage disposal, zoning bylaws, roads, public transit, all of the nerdy stuff that uh, Steve likes to remind people I stay up at night reading about. Yes, you do. <laughs> so for this segment, we want to focus on another trend. It's become increasingly difficult for some municipalities to find anyone, anyone who wants to run. In fact, the Association of Municipalities of Ontario just released a report last week saying there is an upward trend of people running unopposed, candidates being acclaimed because so few people want to run. In 2014, there were 390 acclamations. In 2018, 477 acclamations. And in 2022, 548 acclamations. Here in Toronto, the provincial capital, seven councillors out of 25 are stepping down.
For more, we're joined today by two outgoing elected officials, Maureen Cassidy, outgoing councillor in London, Ontario, and Christian Provenzano, outgoing mayor of Sault Ste. Marie. After eight years on the job, they have decided enough is enough. Welcome, you two. How are you doing? Very well. Thank you for having me here. Yes, me too. <laughs> Great. Uh, Maureen, get us started here. How come you're not going again? Uh, hmm. So it's been eight years. Uh, it's been uh, I've so I've served on two different councils and two very different councils. Uh, it uh, I just sort of feels like the right time for me to make a jump uh, back to the private sector. Um, I don't know what that jump's going to look like yet. I'm still working on it, and I I kind of feel like uh, with the political climate and and everything that's been going on, I kind of feel like I've. I've given all that I can, or if I have, if I have some left, it's going to be, it's going to take a toll on me if I serve another term. So I, I really do think now is the right time for me. Christian Provenzano, how about you? Yes, yeah, so I, I think I, I share, you know, a number of the same conclusions uh, that, that Maureen communicated. Uh, to me, it was actually something that I said at the end of my first term. I, I had reflected on it then when I, when I thought about running for a second term. I really reflected on what I had done, what I'd wanted to do. Uh, and and how long I thought I should stick around for. And it, it seemed to me like uh, the right amount of time was eight years. And there was a couple of reasons for that. Uh, one is I have a, I have a belief and, and an opinion that politicians often overstay their welcomes. And, and I didn't want to do that. As a mayor, your ability to get things done is directly co- correlated to your political goodwill. And if you have a lot of political goodwill, you can get a lot of things done. And if you don't have a lot of political goodwill, you can't get much done. And, and I felt like I'd have a lot of political capital for my second term uh, and that uh, I didn't want to go in a situation and, and, and when having exhausted that. So I said at the end of my first term, I'd only run for one more term. So then that became something that was very important to me to, to live up to and to, to continue to be a person that uh, says what he means and, and means what he said. Uh, Maureen, you said that the climate would take a toll. I'm wondering if you could expand on that. What, what is the climate right now and, and how would it take a toll? There just seems to be um, more of a stark division between people's positions. Uh, it, it seems to be less nuanced. It seems to be more black and white. Um, we have a thing going on in London right now with um, a, a, a an agency that is delivering services to homeless people, and they're operating out of a, a church downtown. Um, there was a bylaw complaint made against them. Uh, I don't know who made the bylaw complaint, uh, but there have been businesses that have been affected by some of the situations going on in the downtown um, uh, with crime, with vandalism, with just disruptive behavior. So there seems to be this pitting of factions against and, and not that everybody is in there. There are many people that are very compassionate and also seeing both sides, the challenges for businesses and the challenges uh, for agencies serving uh, vulnerable people and the vulnerable people themselves. It just feels like the, the debates and the arguments that are public tend to be those really divided black and white debates. Uh, Christian, a follow up for you. You've talked a bit uh, a previously, I think, about frustrations you've had with other levels of government. And I'm wondering if that uh, had anything to do with your decision not to run again. No, no, I, I think, I mean, listen, I'll be very pointed. I expect you're talking about the opioid epidemic that we're all facing, specifically Northern Ontario. I've been very vocal on that. I don't think that we've, municipalities have received uh, the support they need. The healthcare system is significantly under-resourced and underfunded. 
that certainly has been a frustration. Uh, it's certainly something that I've, I've, I've canvassed a number of times. That wasn't a motivation for not, uh, for not running again, certainly. Uh, but, you know, the, the job itself, I was very privileged to have. But, you know, like all big jobs, it's a challenging job. And, and you know, I don't complain about any uh, of the challenges. Maureen speaking to one challenge, which I think is, is a really relevant one. And I frankly think it is affecting people being willing to participate, not only as candidates, but as, as, as citizens who engage in, 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 in uh, public discussion. Social media has had a profound effect on, on politics and policy. Um, and I think it, it's, it's really uh, people's feeds, where they get information, has really served to, uh, to, to really encamp people on their distinct opinions. And, and you see that, right? So frankly, as a politician, and I've had people that have come to see me to talk about running and to, to, to get my feedback. And ultimately, if they decided they weren't running and I asked them why, they, they, they were pretty clear that they didn't want to get into that fray. I've had citizens talk to me about public issues saying, I really support this project. But I don't want to say I support this project because I don't want the, the Facebook and the Twitter, you know, activity. I don't want that, that blowback, that, that, that uh, I don't want to be in part of that social media discussion. So I, I do think that that's had a real effect on civic engagement. I do think it's had a real effect on politics. I think if you look at, you know, some of our national provincial leaders, it's, it's, hard, it's hard to get there without those profiles, too. Like you need them, right? So you need them to get your message out. Uh, but they, they also have an adverse effect. And, uh, and a lot of people kind of share information. Uh, they might think the information is from a reputable source, but the, the second, third, fourth, fifth party receiving that information doesn't know what the source of it is, and they take it as bona fide. And then you have this, this, these real public discussions that have a lot of misinformation in them. And that does get really challenging, for sure. Maureen, I do want to follow up on the social media angle with you, because we all know social media, when the mob comes after women, it's a lot worse than when they come after men. And I want to know whether you have uh, been in the crosshairs of the mob on social media. And if so, is that has that is that also part of the reason why you're not going again? Um, so not so much social media, but um, I'm sure I don't know if you've heard <laughs> in the 2018 election, there was a, um, a smear two smear campaigns that went on in the sort of behind the scenes, shady, shadowy groups. And they targeted the two two. Sorry, if you can hear my dog, she's barking somewhere. Um, <laughs> she's got an opinion yes, on this, too. Yes. Apparently. So they targeted they they. they this organization actually ran 11 different municipal campaigns in the London municipal election, but the only two candidates that they targeted with smear campaigns and anonymous websites, fake election signs, were me and another woman counselor. I got reelected. The other woman counselor, unfortunately, did not. This is sort of coming full circle because it happened in the 2018 election and just this uh, past couple of weeks, um, the the, one of my opponents in the 2018 election just pleaded guilty to violating the Municipal Elections Act and was fined $3,000. So it sort of like opened the book in 2018 and they closed that chapter just just recently. So that was really um, it was it, it, it restored my faith that we do value democracy. We do value our democratic system and we're not going to allow uh, the very people who want to sit in government are supposed to make and uphold the laws <laughs> are violating the very laws that govern how we get into office in the in the first place. So um, so not necessarily being attacked by the mob on social media, but definitely having been targeted in that way. And of the 11 candidates, uh, they, they only chose uh, women to go after in this particular way. 
you've both mentioned the impacts of social media. Uh, Christian, do you think that impacts uh, local politics more than provincial or federal politics? And if so, do you have any theories as to why? You know, I don't have any indication that it is it is kind of more profoundly felt municipally than it is provincially and federally. I do think that that uh, as far as politicians go, I think that your mayor and your councillors are a lot more accessible. I think people have a much kind of closer and, and clearer sense of who their mayor and councillors are and what their mayor and councillors do. So, and a lot of the issues that we deal with uh, are issues that affect people in their in their day to day lives, uh, things like transit routes and garbage pickup and the, the you know operating the pool and operating the rink and the policies that go with that. So it might be a bit more vocal in that respect because we're we're touching people more frequently. We have more direct contact with people on an everyday basis. Maureen, we've certainly heard this expression a thousand times that municipalities are the creatures of the province, and I want to know from you. Again, if any part of your decision not to stand again is that you've discovered over the past eight years that so much of what you might like to do, you can't do because the provincial government has oversight there or they could step in and nix what you've done. How much is frustration with a senior level of government part of your decision not to go again? None of it. <laughs> but I will say uh, a really big part of our job, and it's a it's a reason why I've always tried to maintain a partisan neutral standpoint while I've been on council, a really big part of our job is advocating to the other levels of government, whether that is through uh, municipal organizations like the Association of Municipalities of Ontario or the Federation of Canadian Municipalities. Our advocacy role to other levels of government is extremely important, and we have to be effective at that. And by being overtly partisan, we hurt our chances of that kind of, uh, to have that kind of effect on advocacy. Uh, Christian, just to go back to your point about, you know, all of the, the really direct local ways that municipal politics affects people. Uh, you know, it's no secret that municipal elections tend to be lower turnout than provincial and federal elections. And frankly, our turnout numbers provincially aren't that hot either. Um, why do you think that if municipal elections are so important to touch people's lives so directly, why don't people show up to vote? So so I think there's a couple reasons for that. The, the, the first uh, I, is, is uh, they're nonpartisan. Okay, so uh, when you have you have a bunch of different operators uh, operating their own elections. So you have, let's say, Sault Ste. Marie, you're going to have, you know, a mayoral race. Uh, there might be enough. Now there's five candidates in it. So you have five campaigns there Then you have 10 wards. Let's say there's four candidates in each ward. That's another 40 campaigns. None of those campaigns are working together. None of them relate to each other. So you don't have a few campaigns that are running uh, with a partisan back end that's actually looking at getting the vote out. And I can tell you, and maybe this is different in larger city centers and smaller city, smaller city centers, municipal candidates generally don't have uh, get out the vote operations or robust get out the vote operations. So I think I, and, you know, I've been part of that in, in a previous life and I've seen how that works. And, and I think that drives voter turnout uh, more at the provincial and federal level, but doesn't drive voter turnout at all in the provincial, at the municipal level. So those GOTV campaigns, those are getting people up provincially and they're getting people up federally. You're either getting texts or you're getting phone calls or someone's running around knocking on your door or someone's putting, you know, you vote tomorrow pamphlets in your in your mailbox in provincial and federal campaigns. No one's doing that in municipal campaigns, at least not in smaller city centers that I have experience in. So I think that that drives it to some degree. I think that actually makes a, a difference. And the other thing is, I think that you need a bit of a horse race, right? Like, so 
you know, in provincial and federal campaigns, there's often a horse race, again, between the leaders. And the leaders are talked about a lot, and it becomes a pro or anti uh, him or her discussion, right? So in communities, uh, you know, you don't have that same level of discussion unless you have a heated mayoral race, right? And that, I think, can drive kind of turnout a bit. Um, and I think turnout was better in my 2018 campaign. Uh, sorry, in my 2014 campaign, I think turnout was higher than it was in my 2018 campaign. One of the reasons for that was probably because in 2014, I was running against an incumbent mayor and it became a competitive race. And in 2018, the person that really ran against me filed the last day and didn't, didn't really put together like much of an, I can say it now because we're four years out and it's the truth, didn't really put together much of a campaign to actually rationally, you know, offer the community a different solution. So I don't think people paid a whole lot of attention to it because I think a lot of people felt like I was going to be successful and that affects the, 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 the other races, right? If you're not following the mayoral race, you're probably not following the council races to the same degree. Maureen, maybe you could follow up on that in as much as I know you've been involved in some initiatives to try to encourage people to get involved in politics more. Tell us a bit about that and whether you think you've had any success with it. Um, so, um, yes. And again, I agree with Christian. Uh, I agree that uh, that get out the vote thing is is really important at the at the other levels of government. The other thing with with a municipal um, candidate is where we are um, like our own. We, the whole campaign is about us. We're uh, we don't have a party behind us and we don't generally have a party mechanism behind us at a, in a medium sized city. It's exactly the same as Christian uh, described things that I've been involved in since I was first elected in 2014 was um, encouraging young women and women of all ages to consider a life in in politics, at least for a short time, not not necessarily a 25 year career. So one thing that I've been involved with locally here is uh, is a, a university program that started as a really informal shadowing program. And my my mentor and my predecessor on council, Joni Beckler, had just started this with a professor of uh, justice and peace at King's University College, where a, a bunch of young women, university students, followed her and um, she took them around City Hall, explained how everything works in every single in every single division, set up meetings and presentations with the heads of the division. So it was it was a really valuable program for these young women. And she asked if I would keep it going. So I um, roped in uh, the other female candidate, the other female counselors at the time. And over the years, it has now evolved into a four credit course. It's now with both King's University College and Brescia University College together. They're both affiliate uh, colleges from Western University. And it's gone beyond politics to women in leadership positions in general. So it's called women in civic leadership. Uh, usually they're um, women in third or fourth year university. They apply for this program and they're assigned a mentor. So I am a mentor again this year. And it's a, it's, it's an exciting uh, concept to a lot of these women are political science students, but some of them are not. And most of the time when we do that first meeting and everybody tells a little bit about themselves and the women talk about why they chose to go into this course, a lot of them say, I was never interested in municipal politics before. And I always followed federal politics. But and that was, you know, that was me as well. I was always interested in politics, but I never really got down into the municipal level. And it was my mentor, Joni Beckler, who who convinced me and taught me that 
the importance of municipal, the municipal level of government. So um, whenever I have an opportunity or an invitation to speak at a civics uh, class at the grade five level or the grade 10 level, I always say yes. Uh, we have students that do tours of City Hall as part of their grade 10 uh, curriculum and the grade five curriculum as well. It's one, it's one of the highlights of my time on City Council is interacting with young people and asking them to please consider a role like this because it's so important and it's so important to get not just more women at the table. The UN in the 90s uh, made a recommendation that all levels of government should have on average third minimum of 30% representation from women um, with a goal eventually of being 50%. We're not even at 30%. Um, we're, not, we're not at 30% in London and on average, we're not at 30% across Canada. So I think it's important because those are the those are when we make the best decisions, when we listen to a variety of perspectives and points of view, voices, not just from women, but also people from different backgrounds. And we really need to get that up to a level where we're hearing from the different perspectives in our society to make the best decisions possible. Looking back at your uh, careers thus far and and thinking about these trends of, of you know declining engagement and, and maybe some anxiety about that, uh, you know what goes through your heads? Do you have any feelings uh, towards this this diminishing interest in municipal politics? And maybe Christian, I'll ask you to go first. I think there's a, a broader challenge and problem. Uh, I think it's it's more acute and maybe more visible municipal politics because again, that's closer to the ground, but. But the, the people seem to be, uh, 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 we don't seem to have a common set of facts that we're working from anymore. And, and I think it's really critical to all political, not just discussion, but political engagement, political participation, that people recognize they can disagree on solutions and they can disagree on policies. Uh, and they can disagree on approaches and directions that we should take to address uh, different challenges we have. But it seems like we're losing the agreement on even what the basic kind of fundamentals of those challenges are like. And it seems like people are not operating from the same set of a lot of people are offering from different sets of information. And that that has, I think, gotten worse, I'd say, from from when I started in this role eight years ago to today. And it, it can't keep on deteriorating. And I think I think you saw this problem in the pandemic. And I was really taken aback by how disparate the views were. Um, uh, not only on what we should be doing during the pandemic, but also on the actual pandemic itself and the the uh, the uh, scientific kind of advice that we were being given. So, so I think that that's that's a big problem that has to be wrestled down, not just at municipal levels, but all, at all levels, because you know, for for proper civil discourse, uh, for proper proper kind of civic relationships and civic participation, we have to at a fundamental level be able to agree on on at least what we're talking about. And then we can have a disagreement on how we address the different challenges we're having. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I think a, a big concern for me with the um, with people sort of disconnecting and and becoming more insular. Uh, if when the public conversations are becoming heated and so divided, a lot of the instinct for a lot of people is to withdraw and. We need people to engage more than ever. Um, and, and when I look at here in London, there are some races where there are a lot of candidates, but overall there are fewer candidates running in this election than have run in the past. But I fear that we're losing, um, when we don't have a wide selection of candidates, are we losing in quality somewhat? Are we losing therefore in the quality of the discussion and the debate? 
the issues that we're facing are more complex than ever. We need we need really good candidates to step forward. We read, we need really good um, people to fill these council seats because as we see more and more downloading, which has always been the, the historical reality, when especially when the provincial government is facing challenges, fiscal challenges, they tend to download onto the municipalities, and so the problems that we're seeing. In London, uh, you know, we've had an opioid crisis that predated the pandemic. Our opioid crisis rivaled the three big cities in Canada. The number of needles we give out every year is comparable to Toronto and Vancouver for a fraction of the population. Um, and so we need not just the elected officials to be engaged in those discussions and knowledgeable and providing really good um policies and 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 advocacy to the provincial government we also need the general public to be engaged in those conversations and what happens i think when when a lot of people just sort of tune out and and you know shut their their doors and their windows and and don't want to engage in that is we have the loud voices. We have the people who are at the, the polar opposite end of the spectrum offering their take on the matter. And again, spreading that sort of disinformation, misinformation that we've seen. I found in my eight years on council, if somebody approaches me one-on-one -on -one with a really stark opinion of how they think things are, if I have even a, a short conversation with them and explain some of the background information that they might not have, nine times out of 10, I can either soften their position or sometimes change it all the way. And But when you don't have people willing to have conversations or even engage in, in, in possibly the openness to have their mind changed, it's a very sad place where we that we will have reached. And so I, I'm hoping that people will will not disengage as much as I think they have been. I, I We really need people to stay tuned and to stay aware and to care, to really care what's going on in their cities. You've reminded me of former Prime Minister John Turner's favorite line, which is democracy doesn't happen by accident. You have to participate. And I want to thank you two for participating not only in municipal politics, but also with us today on our On Poly podcast. Maureen Cassidy from London, Ontario, Christian Provenzano, the mayor of Sault Ste. Marie. Thanks to you thank both. Thank you. Thank you to you both. It was great to be here with you, Maureen. It was nice to meet you. And that is the On Poly podcast for this Tuesday, October 4th, 2022. Happy to get your feedback on our newish format at onpolitics at tvo.org. If you really liked it, spread the word. We also want to remind you to read our weekly On Poly newsletter, which drops every Tuesday. You can subscribe to that at tvo.org slash newsletters. Uh, this week, we're going to uh, expand and amplify our thoughts on the decision to keep the Pickering nuclear facility going for yet another year. This week's episode was produced by Tiffany Lamb, edited by Matthew O'Mara, and our managing editor is Shahayar Tajvidi. COVID is not over yet, people, so let's remember, as my dad likes to say, stay positive, test negative. Stay safe, Steve.